Reading from God's holy word, Luke 9, beginning in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, met Jesus. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only son. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Thus far we read in God's holy word, may he bless all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. Very few of us take criticism well. I know, that's where I'm at, criticism. Not welcome, but often needed. How about you? Whether it's the boss that speaks up, or, the, or your spouse, a friend, someone who's known you a long, long time, Maybe an elder at your church comes to you with a criticism. One internet expert at Psychology Today says, for most of us being criticized is an uncomfortable at best and a destabilizing or even devastating experience at worst. The ability to take criticism in stride, it seems, is almost universally elusive. Nobody's going to shout amen. We, we, we know that, Pastor. And it's the purpose of a pastor, a minister of the gospel, to bring good news. But often in the bringing of the good news, there needs to be a critique of those who stand before it. There needs to be an examination of those who profess to be followers of Jesus. Here today in this section of Luke chapter 9, as he writes this magnificent account of the personal work of Christ and his disciples for the third or fourth time, and, and it's not over yet. In chapter 9, the disciples are cast in a fairly poor light. And here, at, at the center of this passage today, is a sharp rebuke. That's heavy. 
significant criticism here falls on the disciples of Jesus. They are uncomfortable, and we're uncomfortable as disciples of Jesus. Yet we need to remember the purposes of God's word. God's word is written so that it might pierce joint and marrow down to our hearts to examine our motives, to discern our thoughts and intentions. In that day, as Jesus spoke to them at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration, criticism was necessary because of the mission of the cross. And in an ongoing sense, it is still necessary for believers to remain cross-centered. I realize why so many Christians don't often read the minor prophets of the Old Testament. In part because we don't always understand the historical context and what's happening. (coughs) But the prophets, with their pointy-fingered words, can make us squirm. You want to avoid criticism, don't read the prophets. But then again, all God's word is profitable for us. I guess I'm I'm laying this out so significantly so that we don't miss the reality of Jesus being frustrated in a non-sinful way with those disciples. And that we see the validity of of spiritual criticism if the Lord sends it our way. Let's see if we can unpack this, and we'll be uh, brief and move along fairly swiftly on this Communion Sunday, Lord willing. First, Jesus and his frustration with the faithlessness of his disciples. Again, it's just one of several episodes, and if you've read past this episode, you know that it only gets a little worse as they compete to see who is the greatest. But that's next week. Here we're told in verse 37 that Jesus has come down from the mountain. What is that a reference to? Well, in the previous paragraph, you can see in your Bible, especially if there's a subheading, that last week we talked about the transfiguration. The mountain there in Galilee was a high mountain and Jesus had gone up with three of his disciples and while there he met with God the Father and he was transfigured. He, his divinity was shining all out of him and he was with two Old Testament characters, Moses and Elijah, who were shiny as well. It was an awesome sight. But Jesus is coming down from the mountain. He's coming from the mountain where his majesty was made known. And he's coming down to the foot of the mountain, to the valley, where some misery is taking place. The great uh, American comment, the great foreign commentator from the 40s and 50s, Norval Gelden, who says, the contrast between the rest and glory on the mountain and the struggle And defeat below is indeed intense and gripping. Jesus returns to the yearning, struggling, and unbelieving world of men to fulfill his work there as the divine bringer of salvation. Peter wanted to stay on the mountain. Hey, let's build some tents. Jesus said no. 
God the Father said, listen to Jesus. So they've come down from the mountain. It's the same Jesus, same divine, glorious Jesus, but again in his incarnate appearance so that he appeared as others appear. And then he walked down into the valley. He encounters two miserable problems. And we see that. It's, it's not a complicated passage. The first miserable problem is a demon-afflicted lad an only child of a man who's begging for help. He had come. Jesus wasn't there. Three of the apostles were gone. So at least nine apostles were left, as well as other disciples. And he goes to them and says, help me, help me see what's happening. And they could not help. The lad experienced some painful and serious afflictions. Verse 39 specifies that a spirit seized him, a demon seized him, and he cries out. The demon convulses him, and he foams at the mouth and shatters him. There's injury, and will hardly leave him. Well, modern liberal scholars and unbelievers say, well, that's a case of epilepsy. Nothing demonic about that. Well... It may indeed be a case of epilepsy where a demon is triggering it and making it worse. Because what do we have? We have Dr. Luke, the physician, who's writing an orderly account. Remember chapter 1? He's no dummy. People in the ancient world could tell what disease and illness looked like. But they could also perceive the presence of evil. And this text in God's word tells us that this was a demon afflicting a boy. Whether there was another illness present isn't the main concern. It's the demon that seems to be provoking it and making it worse. As Del Ralph Davis says in a kind of a gross picturesque way, Satan salivates to destroy body and spirit. This boy was a victim of the great supernatural warfare, the spiritual warfare that is ongoing, but that we know has been dealt a death blow and will end as the book of Revelation says it will end. But this is the first problem that Jesus counters, and it's a misery. It's a misery not only for the boy, but it's a misery and heartache for his dad and all the others that see this affliction. It brings grief. Upon the community, a great crowd had gathered. But there's a second misery here. The disciples, the impotent disciples, the faithless disciples in that moment, they were still disciples, but they were not acting by faith. They're rebuked. The man says, I begged, but they could not. Why? They had previously, as we read in Luke, uh, at, the, at the very beginning of the chapter, Jesus called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out. That's how the chapter began. You've got a mission and you've got the means to accomplish your mission. I, Jesus, authorize you. I give you power over all demons and diseases. So what's happened here? 
this, this is a great setback in their preparation as apostles. And it brings grief upon Jesus. It's distressing their inability to deal with that situation, especially given their previous training, their previous experience, and their commission and resources. We call it an act of faithless disciples. They could not help. There was a defect. There was a, 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 something missing in the equation. As Phil Riken says, although the disciples had seen the light of the glory of God, they were not yet able to turn back this form of darkness. So what does Jesus do? Jesus brings them a stern rebuke. We read that as the report of the man is finished. In verse 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation! How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Who's he rebuking? He's not rebuking the father, the dad. Because the man has come because he has faith in Jesus. He he doesn't take his son to a different healer or to a rabbi in another town. He brings him to Jesus. In the other gospels where this account is recorded and some are longer with more details, it, it has the man's plea. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus is not rebuking the Father, but rather he's rebuking those who should have had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and who should have been faithful to their commission and equipping. Jesus is rebuking his people, his disciples. And he's using the language of the Old Testament to do it. It's a strong phrase. Faithless, yes, we we hear that and see that. We know that even in our own walk with the Lord, sometimes we don't act by faith, yes. But then it presses deeper, this rebuke. Twisted generation. Or the King James here, do you see it? Perverse, meaning something's been turned and twisted, distorted, perverted. And he's saying that to his people. This perhaps comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 5. Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, is kind of Moses' recap of the, the Torah. And so much of it is just laying out things clearly for God's people before Moses leaves. Verse 32 is the song of Moses. So this great summary meant to be remembered. And in 32.5, we read this. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Speaking of God's called out people. And perhaps there's also an allusion here to Isaiah 59, verse 8. Isaiah 59 is explaining how God's people can sometimes sink into a low condition. Verse 8 there says, The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice, no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. 
No one who treads on them knows peace. God's people can mess up big time. And in the Old Testament, God sent them prophets, not simply to foretell the future. Most of the work of an Old Testament prophet wasn't foretelling, but rather forthtelling. This is the way it is. Clean up your act. You people draw near to me with your hands, but your hearts are far from me. Correctives for God's people, from God's prophets, in God's word. And Jesus, as it were, cites that and with his own authority and with his own purpose, refers to his disciples. Do not continue out of the way. Do not turn and pervert or twist the way things should work or my role and my significance. Do not put yourself above me thinking, oh, I can handle this demon. I did one just last week. Uh, Let me give it a shout. No, you're reversing the course. You're changing the plan. You're thinking of something other than me. So Jesus rebukes his followers who weren't following at the moment. That Greek word for twist is to distort or turn, but metaphorically it can mean pervert or corrupt, to cause to make defection. We see that in every news cycle, not only from journalists that no longer are journalists, but uh, proselytizers. We see it from our politicians. Sadly, we see it in some pulpits. Somebody gets their eyes off Jesus and God's methods. Perhaps they elevate themselves too much or rely on their own resources and not the resources of the Holy Spirit. Something is out of line. Something is out of whack. And even here in chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus corrects that. And we're told these things for our benefit, that we might learn from this rebuke. Jesus was upset with them. Not in a sinful way was he frustrated, but in a righteous and holy way. And he speaks the truth. Would Jesus ever say that to us, to you? To bring about a quick and powerful corrective from his word. I know a couple of times in the last few weeks where something from God's word hits the brakes in my thinking in my life and I stop. It's pointing at me. It is a corrective. God's word will have that purpose in your life. If you don't know the true doctrine of the word of God, you need to know, perhaps by memory, Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Yay! There's more. And profitable for teaching, for reproof. For correction. 
and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's word is not just a hallmark card. They're there, it'll be better. God's word often brings reproof and correction. I'm not here to put anybody on a guilt trip. I'm not here to to shame anybody uh, with my rhetoric or with the purpose of the sermon. I'm simply here to point out this is the way God's word and the word of God Jesus works. Sometimes disciples need to get a check on their own impetus and their own initiative. Hey, stop. That stern rebuke. But Jesus doesn't stop with rebuke. He doesn't pout. He doesn't storm off. He came down from the mountain to address the misery of mankind. Ultimately at the cross. But he's not going to abandon this need at the moment. And once again he hears the words of his disciples. The power of Jesus is manifest in this text. Yes, first and foremost, the power of God in Jesus is present in the rebuke. It's a power over foggy, faith-neglecting minds to call them back. That's why scripture memory is so helpful. Psalm 119 says in the first dozen verses, Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. The rebuke brings the power of God's word into our hearts and minds. So if we're going to talk about Jesus' power over man's miseries, Our frailties and our foibles are helped by the power of God's word. That's first. Now, secondly, we can get to the exorcism. And we see Christ's power over evil. Evil doesn't stand a chance. There's no doubt about the outcome here. When Christ appeared on the scene, says one commentator, the battle was immediately won. And the demon seems to know that as Jesus calls the boy forward and as the father encourages him, go to Jesus, the demon takes one last shot at him and throws the kid down and convulses him, as we're told in the text. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. Jesus has power over evil. There is evil in our world today. Perhaps it's more active in other areas and more subtle in our area. But it's present. We live in a world where there is supernatural spiritual warfare underway. Demons are real. They're not just Bible stories. They're not myth and legend. They're real. But we see the power of Jesus. To correct strain or ineffective disciples. To confront evil. And then the third manifestation of the power of Jesus here is this healing miracle. 
The compassion of Jesus is revealed and everyone witnesses it. Not only does he defeat the demon, but the boy's body needs a healing touch. Whether there was epilepsy in the background or simply the the consequences of being demon attacked, Jesus binds up the little boy and gives him back to his father. And we're told plainly, all were astonished at the majesty of God. Verse 43. They were connecting the work of Jesus with the grace and glory of God, the Father on high, as they should. The majesty of Jesus didn't only appear on top of the mountain. It's in these works of deliverance and compassion as well. We should remember, as one has encouraged us, Today, too, whenever his presence and redeeming power are called on through humble faith, no problem is too difficult, no matter what the field of life. Jesus can heal body and spirit. His power manifests his majesty and mitigates our miseries. But there's more. And if we see it in verse 43, as our text is numbered by men, right in the middle of that verse, a a new thought develops. And most Bibles print it as a new paragraph. But it's still the same episode. So the remainder of verse 43, the crowds are all marveling. And by the way, just so you know, when you read your Bible, when somebody marvels at the work of Jesus, it doesn't mean they're all converted. It just means they're all going... Ooh, wow. And they start thinking. Some might be converted, but it's not the same thing. To marvel is not the same as to repent and believe. But the crowd's marveling as they should. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, he speaks to his disciples, and this is the The third major heading here. What does Jesus do? He calls them to focus on the cross. Let these words sink into your ears, he says first. What's he saying? He's saying, listen up. Listen well. This Hebraicism is an idiom that means, well, literally it's uh, let it sink down into your ears, but it, it, it means memorize this. Lock this down. What's another quick phrase for memorize? That's what Jesus is saying. Hear it and never forget it. Why the the solemn injunction? He's already rebuked them. He's dealt with the first problem. But now he's addressing the second problem. These disciples. Their eyes had been turned from him and God's ways... Jesus is calling them to focus. I can almost see a scene of a mother with her child, whether it's in the store where he's been misbehaving or in their home. She grabs him by his cheeks and says, Son, you listen to me. She gets his attention so that the word is heard. This is solemn. Jesus is still filled with the intent to get these disciples on track. So he says, let these words sink into your ears. 
Hadn't we heard something similar on the mountain from God the Father? Peter, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The Father and the Son both seeking appropriate attention. Attention and commitment. Listen. So then what does Jesus say, having planted that signpost? He said, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That's his preferred title for himself, speaking in the third person. The Son of Man, he means me, the Messiah, using the divine title that appears so richly in the book of Daniel and the messianic connotations to it. Earlier in the chapter, he had begun speaking this way, so he's just repeating that, as it were. Earlier in chapter 9, verse 21, verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He'd already broached that subject. It was hard for his disciples to swallow. But he returns to get their focus on the cross. Here, in this verse 44, he simply says the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He's just adding to what he said before when he pointed out the Jews would kill him. Here, it's a reference to the Jews involving the Gentiles in his death. Delivered, handed over. Crucified. The cross where Jesus is crucified is central to our understanding of Christianity. It was central to Christ's mission and it's central to our discipleship as well. Didn't we sing earlier? So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. Who sings like that? I tell you, Christians sing like that who know that we're forgiven by the grace of God, not because I've earned it. Christians sing like that to maintain a humility and trust in the crucified one, their Savior and Lord. And to remind ourselves this is how God works through suffering and death of the righteous. That's God's plan. That's God's manner. And perhaps at the foot of the mountain while Jesus was gone, the disciples had forgotten that. Perhaps they were too full of themselves. They were not full of Christ. So Jesus is getting their attention back to the cross. The Lord Jesus would spend time with a man named Saul of Tarsus who was converted in a dramatic fashion. He would one-on-one disciple Saul who would become Paul the Apostle. And Paul understood the centrality of the cross, especially in his public ministry. But just as it's central in ministry, it's central in the Christian's walk. Paul had to write a letter to the Corinthians to get them all straightened out. It was a very confused church. But at the heart of Paul's writing wasn't, you know, how to to win friends and influence people. 
seven ways to plan for your retirement. No, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The heart of the gospel was helpful to Paul when he planted the church, and he refers to it as he writes to the church. It's the great corrective for the pride of man. It's the great comfort for the sin of disciples who've slipped. Remember the cross. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday, not today, someday for a crown. Paul wouldn't boast. Galatians 6.14 But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Are we hearing Paul as he extrapolates on what Jesus wants us to hear? Let it sink down. Christ must go to the cross. This is going to happen. And it's the centerpiece of my ministry because it's your hope in life and death. It's what will guide and shape your Christian life. The cross. Jesus had already given the the speech, take up your cross and follow me. But he's speaking of his cross. Let me just pause in case someone isn't aware. The cross of Jesus Christ is where our salvation is won. Where his holy, righteous, sinless offering by his blood makes atonement, cleansing, and forgiveness of our sin possible. By his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, fulfilled in the cross. And Jesus' words, it is finished. His suffering and death pays for all the sins of all his people forevermore. When you become a Christian, your sins, past and present, are forgiven. But what if you sin the next day? Yikes, what do I do? There's no new cross. It's the same cross. When Christ died, all our sins were future, were they not? And Christ dies for them all, once for all time. Hebrews explains this. This is the good news of Christianity. Christ died for sinners. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and claim Christ as your Savior and Lord. That's what this is about. To make Christ known because it's by his life, death, and resurrection we have life. Yet we're told at the very end here, we read right through verse 45, but they did not understand this saying. They didn't get it yet. You're going to be delivered, you're going to be killed. Lord, this, it doesn't make sense. Everything's working so well. We've got a good crowd here today. They just couldn't grasp it. They're thinking in messianic terms. Perhaps... As J.C. Ryle, who was citing some other unnamed commentator, perhaps for them, the throne of David so filled their eyes that they could not see how the cross fit in. 
Maybe that's where the disciples had gone awry. Seeing this demon and, and treating it as inevitable that every foe would now be vanquished and, and taking things into their own hands, getting away from the gospel and God's plan. If you don't have a place for the cross in your theology, your theology isn't biblical. Luke, like Mark, stresses the obtuseness of the disciples who found this teaching beyond their grasp. But he attributed their blindness to the purpose of God. Do we see what else it says in verse 45? They did not, they, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. It was their fault, but there was also something else blocking their understanding. What was that? We could guess and experiment. We know ultimately all things come back to the sovereignty of God. Whether he allowed their, their obtuseness to rule the day, or he purposely veiled it for a season according to his purposes. It was concealed As one scholar said, this may mean they are actively prevented from understanding or simply that before the resurrection it seemed contradictory to the disciples that salvation could come by way of Jesus' death. There's a learning curve there. We bow to the sovereignty of God, yet we hold men to account for what we are to know. Our focus in life and ministry needs to be the cross. Does it now? Let me close with uh, three questions this morning. Number one, what does Jesus think of your faith and fruitfulness? If Jesus were to come down to the mountain and find out how your work is going, would those in your life say, we came to him for help but he couldn't help us you you get what I'm trying to apply trying to let God's word examine us what do you think Jesus thinks of your faith is there an area where he would be frustrated and disappointed that you're not grasping you're not trying to grasp maybe it's just simply you've let your devotional life Waste away, you're coasting. You know, I've been a Christian for decades, Pastor. I know what the Bible says. I guess I don't have to read it every day. And, and uh, you know, every day isn't something magical, but I think it's something important. If you truly believe that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, if you really believe that, Your daily bread should be the word of God. And let that shape and form and strengthen your faith. Christians were not to be twisted. That was the rebuke, right? When Paul was writing to the Philippians, they were doing okay. And he was encouraging them. And he describes them as not being twisted. Philippians 2.15, part of his prayer Uh, That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, 
among whom you shine like lights in the world. That's our role. Don't slip. The church is, is the pillar of truth in a place. We just shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. That's the first question. Second, will you trust God to do what only God can do? Will you trust God to do what only God can do? You cannot talk someone into the kingdom. You cannot forcibly convert your parents or your children, your sibling or your co-worker. Only God can do the work within. There is work for us to do. That's clear. But will you trust God to do what only he can do? Phil Riken, when he preaches on this text, is, he, he talks about four mistakes every Christian makes at one time or another. And number one is not trusting God to do what only God can do. I think we do that a lot. We tend to come into a situation in our own heart and mind or in our life and we, oh, I can handle this. And as we discover how hard it is, we keep trying to handle this. And we often refuse to trust God to do what is beyond our strength to control or to do. Or as Riken says, we try lots of ways to manage our own sin. But real transformation, he says, comes by trusting in the gospel to change our hearts and minds. In your own strength, can you overcome temptation? In your own strength, can you walk by faith? We often think we can. Trust God to do what only God can do. And finally, do you see God's way of victory over man's miseries? Do you not see in this episode as Christ continues his work, his labors, frustrating as they may be with disciples and with the world, do you see God's way of victory? It isn't all from the Mount of Transfiguration. It's in the trenches. And it involves suffering. And in the case of Christ, it involved his death. God's comfortable with that modus operandi. Do you see God's way of victory? It's going to be the same for us. We want to gain a victory over our temptations or victory in the circumstances where God has put us. We want to be found faithful. God's way of getting us there is not always the Hollywood plot line. He has his own way of victory. I wanted to end by reading almost all of Colossians chapter 2, but I'm not going to do that. Let me just pull two verses from Colossians 2. Verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Talking of Christ, the majesty, but then down in verse 15, this is mountain and valley. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. It's Christ's way, the majesty that deals with misery. Praise God, he does time and time again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. 
We thank you for these instructions and even for the criticism or correction we often need to hear ourselves. Father, may we be teachable and may we expect no less than robust interaction with your word. That we will be trained, we will be comforted, but we will also be corrected and reproved. Father, may your word have its way with us. That we might be closer to you and more fruitful in your service. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.